Welcome to Secrets from the Scene, a show for local musicians who want to improve their music, grow their audience, and learn about Minnesota's music scene. If you're interested in talking about all things music-related and meeting interesting people from our local community, you're in the right place. On today's episode, we have Ashley DeBose. Ashley and I have known each other for a couple years. We've done a tiny bit of work together, but we really don't know each other that well yet. So I'm really excited to learn from her today, to share her insights with all of you. She's got her hands in a lot of different places. Uh, Super talented artist for one. I can't wait to have you hear some of her music, but also is doing things like real estate, has a diverse amount of incomes, and is just really smart and has been in the music scene for a long time. I'm going to jump to her bio because it'll tell you a lot more than that. Ashley DeBose is a recording artist and performer who is most widely known for her hit single, Intoxicated, and has nearly 7 million streams on Spotify, and her compelling audition and performances on season 5 of NBC's The Voice. That was in 2013, where all four coaches turned their chairs for her. Just prior to that, in 2012, she released her first independent full-length album, Something More, while juggling college and parenting her then two-year-old daughter. Ashley was chosen Best Female Vocalist by City Pages in 2014 and released her second album, Be You, in 2015. In addition to parenting, songwriting, performing, and recording music, Ashley has a bachelor's in mathematics, invests in real estate, does on-camera and voiceover acting, and travels nationally performing at private and corporate events with her cover band, North Star. She's performed and collaborated with notable acts such as Lizzo, Prof, Nicholas David, Mike Dreams, Rest in Peace, and many more. Please welcome Ashley DeBose. Thank you. That was a wonderful intro. Oh, yeah. Very thorough. Hey, it's impressive. You've Thank done you. a lot of amazing stuff. And I want to point out North Star is not my cover band, but a cover band that I've been blessed to be a part of since 2015. Sure, yeah. 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 No, so I guess they're mine because they're my family. Yeah. You didn't, and I don't you want didn't. them to hear it and be like, oh, we belong to you now, Ashley? Right. <laughs> yes. I'm just kidding. Do you perform with any other cover bands? No, but when I perform as Ashley DuBose and I'm hired to do long sets, I always throw in some covers of music that I enjoy listening to and that I think you want to throw in some music for people who don't know all of my stuff. So yeah. I do yeah, covers. Definitely. Covers. What's like a long set for you? Two hours. Yeah. But when I perform with North Star, we do four hour. Oh, yeah. Those cover band gigs are yeah. intense. With some breaks. There's like dinner portions and, and breaks for talking and everything. But I'm talking about when I'm hitting, when I'm expected to be on stage for the full two hours. Yeah. It's long for me. It's a lot. 90 minutes used to sound long to me, but now I'm like, oh, that's that. Since I've been doing North Star for eight, nine years now, almost nine years, 90 minutes is like nothing. But two hours for some reason makes me feel like <laughs> nervous. Let's see. We know each other through Cam, your husband. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. We're not, we're co-parents. co-parents. We're not, we're not married. You know what? I We were engaged. Okay. That's why you would think, you're like, by now they got to be married because they would, we engaged, we got engaged in 2021. Okay. But we just decided co-parenting is the best. Well, you route. guys have been doing that forever. 
co-parenting. We've been co-parenting, yeah, for since we have a four, going on 14-year-old daughter. She'll be 14 October 8th. And we've been co-parenting since for 14 years. Yeah. Then we got back together and got engaged, had our second child, a son. Now we're expecting our third child. <laughs> so we like to make babies. And we have beautiful, healthy children yeah. and, and we co-parent them well. Yeah, absolutely. Cam and I have done a couple albums together. And he and loves you, by the way. Like I love him. I, I love his music. Yeah. Yeah, it was cool that on this last record, you came in and were a part of that. And mm -hmm. we got to do a little work together. And then we've done some stuff for Sync. And mm -hmm. yeah. Yep, that was fun. That was a really beautiful time. Uh, and also being able to include our daughter on that album. And then Brittany Delaney, who did the spoken word piece, Rest Her Soul, she just passed oh, I'm sorry a couple weeks ago. Yeah, she was going through a long battle. She fought so hard and she was so beautiful and talented. So I want to mm. make sure I let you know that because I don't think you knew that. I didn't. But no. She did that. A Mother's Poem. Yep. That was a beautiful project. Uh, Y'all did we'll, an amazing job. Uh, thanks. We'll link to that in the show notes too for anybody that's curious to hear Cameron Mann's project for sure. And of course, Man of the stuff, Year. But let's take it back way before that. Now that listeners know how we know each other, mm -hmm. but- Tell them about yourself and where music started and yeah. your kind of journey up to this point. I've done this a few times. Let me see if I can get it. So people ask me, when did I start singing? And I started singing as a kid in my room, like singing to the radio and stuff. I, I used to listen to KDWB and KTIS, which is a Christian alternative station. I have a lot of different influences. So there's top 40 pop in there, KDWB, R&B, hip hop, gospel, Christian, contemporary and, and alternative music. I really love and appreciate all styles and particularly Killing Me Softly. I love back in the day when they used to play some good R&B. I'm not saying they don't play it now, but music has changed. Killing Me Softly, the Fuji's rendition is originally recorded by Roberta Flatt. And I didn't know it at the time. But anyway, I learned that along the way. But when that bridge would come on, I was belted what I thought my little seven-year-old, six-year-old self was belting. I knew all the words. And so that song really sticks out to me as like a prominent journey in my life soundtrack or yeah. music journey. And I sing it a lot now to this day, like as a cover and shows and things like that. So from there, I would just sing in my room. And then one day when I was older, my mom was working at the Boys and Girls Club in St. Paul on the West Side. She was the art teacher. And there was a talent show and I signed up for it. And the kids that was in her room one of them must have said, hey, Miss Yvonne, do you know your your daughter? She's going to be singing in the talent show. She, which daughter? She didn't know which one of her three daughters they were talking uh -huh. about. So she didn't even know that I, I could sing or like to sing. So anyway, once my mom got wind of the fact that I could sing, she would ask me to sing for everybody. Oh, my, my daughter sings. Ashley, come here. Come sing for them. And I'm like, and I would get so nervous. And sometimes I would come up with reasons why I couldn't. I'm sick or whatever. And she'll offer me a dollar or something. And I'm like, okay, I'll sing. <laughs> so I guess that's when I got, uh, got started getting paid to sing and it never stopped. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> so she would encourage me to sing and talent shows at school, the Boys and Girls Club, community events and stuff. Later on, I would join a trio called Imani, Mommy and Company, which my, was my friend Imani. Mani Strings on YouTube. She's a violinist, a hip hop artist, a producer. Just She really took it all the way. She lives in L.A. right now and just, she's doing her thing. She's worked with the game. I, why am I blanking right now? To Pimp a Butterfly. Oh, wow. Uh, Kendrick Lamar. Kendrick Lamar, thank you. So she's done her thing. But So we started real young. She was working with her mom who got her master's, I think maybe in her PhD, but probably her master's, in like music performance and piano. So she really cultivated in her music performance. And I got to get a little taste of that being with them and performing around town. And they would pay me 
I would get like $42 for a show, and I thought that was a lot. How old were you at this time? 17. Okay. This is, I was a senior at Central High School. So I went on, eventually met Cameron, and recorded my first little demo tracks in his room because he was doing his thing as a rapper. I think he started as early as 14. So when we, our paths crossed, he was like 18, I was 17. We started dating when I was 18, he was 19, around that time. So I had dabbled in recording myself. I Actually, when I was 16, I remember recording a song with a friend of mine named Andy Doe. It was a song called I'm So Over You, talking about a crush of mine that, or he wasn't a crush anymore. He knew I liked him, but he was like leading me on for all of high school. And I was like, I'm over you. So I wrote that song at 16 and recorded that before I met Cameron. But once I met Cameron, I was like, he taught me how to use Pro Tools. I was recording myself, like basic edit, like stop, record, cut, move things, put a little compression on it. And I thought I was doing something. So, but I actually had a gift early on. Looking back, I'm like, I had, a, I had a good songwriting gift and a good ear. Anyway, eventually worked with Mike Dreams. That was my first time getting my, like, recording with somebody who was actually professionally doing it and putting it out into the world. Like, I didn't even know how to do that yet. So once he had me on a few of his songs and got rest his soul, Mike Dreams is my brother, like, amazing, talented artist. And he passed away earlier this year in January. Also want to shout out. Thank you for acknowledging that yeah. in the intro. I asked him, like, can you link me with some of your producers? Because I, I want to make my own music. So he connected me with Wiz. And Wiz had a roommate named JT or Jimmy Easy. And they were both producers. Wiz was working in the basement. Jimmy Easy was, like, they called it Studio A and Studio B. <laughs> and it was really dope. In Maplewood, off DeSoto, 2007 DeSoto Street. That was such a big part of my journey, just making music with those guys. We made, recorded my first album, Something More, in 2012. And then went on to record another album with JT and a bunch of other producers, friends of his and creatives in the Minnesota community that came together and put out BU, which was a really, it it performed really well. Like people received it really well. By that time I had been on The Voice, so the exposure was there. And Star Tribune put out an article and named it one of the best albums of 2015 so far. Yeah. And things like that. Right after I dropped that album, like, I joined the cover band. Actually, I joined the cover band a month before I released it. I had a sold-out release show, and that was really dope, with the avant-garde, Chadwick Niles Phillips of the avant-garde. We partnered to uh, release that at Bedlam, Lower Town, which is no longer a venue, but it was a really dope spot. So that was really successful. And then I started singing with a cover band, so I never toured the album. I didn't have that set up. I didn't have a manager who could book me or book an agent and stuff. So I feel like I had these pieces that just weren't placed where I think most people would take a project like that and really try and push it worldwide. The notoriety and the growth and like intoxicated having 7 million streams on one platform alone, that's not including like all the other ones on Spotify. That was an organic thing where it just, I put it out. I would like tweet about it and stuff on my platforms, but I never had any real push so yeah. it's cool to see how the music has gone on and take on a life of its own to get out to the people and people gravitate to certain songs and maybe somebody put it on a playlist. It's, it's interesting how it goes on and into the world. And Issa Rae, who a lot of people know her now for Insecure, and she had a series on YouTube called First. Her music producer person reached out to me and was like, hey, we love your music. We'd like to use some songs for the series. And I was like, here, take it. Like, use what you want, stupid. Like, I- At this point, I'm like, I should have asked for some money for it. But I was like, you, what you want? And so they put like, what that was good, though, too, because 
sometimes money can be a barrier too. Yeah. And I think they were like, this girl's dope. She's not even asking us for nothing. She's telling us to take what we want. They put five of my songs in their episodes. And so a lot of people were, will reach out to me and be like, I just, I first heard about you on yeah. Easter Ray's first, like back in the day. And I'm like, that's so cool. So now I'm like, I wish you would have used some of my music on Insecure, but because that's when she really popped when Insecure yeah. went yeah, yeah. big on HBO. So is that the, when that happened, was that like around the second album? Yeah, she used music from both albums. So it, was, it had to be after 2015 that yeah. she reached out. All right. Well, that's a pretty good overview so yeah. far. I mean, it sounds like a pretty organic, I met this person and then this opportunity. Mm -hmm. You start with the people around you that are in high school, as most people do, right? Yeah. And you get a few little experiences. Somebody's got a home set up. Mm -hmm. Start, okay, we can record. We can start hearing your ideas back. It starts to feel tangible. Okay, I see how this can work. Yeah. Um, and asking questions too, because I saw somebody else doing it. I'm like, yeah. can you connect me with that person? And then, yeah. One of your first big connections outside of there's Cameron with his Pro Tools set up at home. And then there's Mike Dreams after that. Was Mike Dreams also like at your high school? Did you guys grow up together? No, I think my dreams went to, I think, Park Center. He grew up in Brooklyn Center, I believe. I don't want to get his story wrong. So how did you meet him? I met him through Cameron. Okay. Yes, Cameron introduced us. All right. So, so friends of friends kind yeah. of thing. And then you end up getting to feature with him a little bit. Yep. And, and we then... would perform around the city as a collective called Stories of Glory. Mm. And it was myself, my dreams, Brandon Trevon, Margo Davis, Leonard, Cameron. And we would all perform at the Loring Theater and fine line and put on these shows like as a collective and so that was i left that part out there's so many details that's like hard oh, to yeah. capture but i just want to make sure i acknowledge that too what i love about it is that the next person you meet it's like what opportunities can that bring what kind of collaborations yeah. and it was always meet this person they have this thing it's one step and then builds to the next step builds to the next step mike mm -hmm. then introduces you to some more of his producers now mm -hmm. you have an even bigger network and the network keeps expanding, keep expanding because you mm -hmm. just keep meeting people. Right. It, it just goes to show a lot of when you're in the community and you're a friendly person and mm -hmm. you're easy to like and you're easy to be around and you're a good hang, so many opportunities can come from that. Right. And it sounds a ton of the opportunities, not all of them, I'm sure, but a ton of them have been just from your immediate network. Yeah. Then there's word of mouth, right? So mm -hmm. when you're doing your thing and then the next person might be looking for an artist to sing a hook or perform at an event or something and now you're on the radar of people and they can start mentioning and suggesting you to other people that are not in your network and that's how it yeah builds. so walk me through how the voice came up how like the whole experience okay. from deciding to do it to the show itself and and then post show yeah okay so there's a woman named kelly and she's a fan of mine and i met her at a show that she came to see another, Ashley Gold, who's an, another um, singer in the community. And we were performing at this spot. I think Tish Jones, it was an event of hers. She put it on, or she definitely was there. So maybe she just performed and I might be mixing up the details, but Tish Jones is an uh, amazing, phenomenal spoken word artist and like humanitarian and stuff. And she's got definitely a name in the city. Shout out to her. So I remember meeting Kelly at this event. She's, oh my gosh, you're so amazing. I came to see Ashley Gold and here I find another like Ashley that I've become a fan of. This is dope. So we connected and everything and I, we might've exchanged like Facebook information or something. She hit me up one day and was like, the voice is going to be in town. You should try out. And I knew what the voice was because I had watched it previous. Like it was newer because it was only season four at this point and they were doing two seasons a year. So 
they were what going on year three. So it was pretty new. I knew about it. And she was like, they're going to be in town in St. Paul. You should audition. And I had my youngest sister's graduation party to go to that day. And it was the night before when I read her message. And I was like, let me go online and see how to do this. And there was a 7 a.m. and an 11 a.m. slot. It was the morning of I tried to register. So I probably waited to the last minute. But I think I got her message the night before. So when I finally went on to do it, it was like 9 o'clock, 7 a.m. had passed, 11 a.m. was full. So I sent an email and I was like, hey, I'm Ashley DuBose and it's my dream to be a singer and I want to audition, blah, blah, blah. But I'm wondering how I can still audition because I've missed this 7 a.m. slot. And then I went on to get myself ready and my daughter ready so we could get going to the graduation party. Then I got an email back and they said, just come through, just still come. And oh no, did they email me? I don't know. I don't know if I didn't get an email or whatever, but it was on the way. So I still stopped. I said, it's right here. Let me just stop in and see if I can go and like audition. So it was a really hot day. It was like July and it was like 90 something. And when I got there, I found out the line had just got in the door. It was such a long line. It was wrapped around the building. So the timing, talk about good timing. Like I didn't even have to wait out in the heat. So I had my daughter with me and this bodyguard was like, you got your daughter with you? What is this? this is, you treat this like a job interview. You don't come come to an audition with your, with your daughter. He was really going in on me. And I'm like, dang, I'm a young mom just with my daughter. Like if I had another option, I probably would have put her somewhere else, but not put her somewhere else, like a boarding house or something. But anyway, I was like, I called my brother and I was like, Jeffrey, can you come? get Cameron because I'm at this audition and da, 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 da. I explained it. So it wasn't far from the graduation party. It was like probably five to seven minutes away. Okay, so yeah. he came and got her. And then I went on and was able to audition. And I got to a, the second round when they in, invite you to audition in a more private setting. Now they have an interview and then you prepare, prepare more songs. So it's like another pre-televised round of audition. So I got to this next step. And then I had my friend Omid on guitar because the second round you can have an accompanist, either a track or you could play your own instrument or have somebody accompany mm-hmm. you. And I didn't play an instrument, but Omid was amazing. And so I asked him to come do it. And of course, he said, yes, I love Omid Hooter, H-U-T-A-R. Um, shout out to him. We did Killing Me Softly because I told you that's oh, my yeah. song. And then we did a couple other songs. I can't remember what they were. But we played Killing Me Softly to a track that starts with a very low bass line. And I couldn't hear the key. So when I started singing in the wrong key, so I got off on the wrong track. Everything else was going good up until that point. This probably was like my second song that I did. And then when Omid came in, I can't remember if he came in to support me at the key that I was in or if he was like, oh, shoot, you're in the wrong key, but I'm going to just play the key of the track. I can't remember which one. But eventually, halfway through the song, I get on the right key. But it was like a nightmare in my mind because I knew it. It wasn't like I was just singing along thinking I was doing great. No, I knew I was in the wrong key, but I was like, oh gosh, like how do I change? Eventually, we synced up with the track, right key, went on to do the third song. Third song was great. I thought, okay, I still, I'm still in this. I'm still in this. That was a bad start, but I think they could see past that and everything. I felt everything else went well. So then the, the next round th- that same day would be to go and do an uh, interview. So now they have you in the room and they're interviewing you, cameras and everything. And so I took that as a good sign because they could have said, thank you. That's all we need to see and sent mm-hmm. me home. But I was like, okay, I got the interview. That's good. So they said, okay. After the interview, they're like, we'll be in touch with you. If you don't hear from us by whatever date, then you didn't get selected. So 
the date, the hear back by date came and left. Okay. So I knew I didn't get it. And I was like, oh, it's probably because of this, that, and the other. So then when I found out they were going to be auditioning for the next season, which was season five, I said, I felt good about that first audition process. I felt like it was just this little thing. I'm going to try again. So they were going to be in Chicago this time. So I said, I could take a quick little flight to Chicago. That's close enough. I'm going to do it. I reached out because I had two emails now. I had the casting director's email from the first time I auditioned and the general info at NBC The Voice email. So I reached out to both and I'm like, hey, this is who I am. I auditioned last time. I got to this round, blah, blah, blah. I'm just wondering, I want to audition again for this next season. I was wondering if I can uh, skip the line, so to speak, because I already did this part. Like, yeah, I already determined that I was good enough to go to this part. Can I just go straight to this part? The nerve. But I be asking because you have to ask because if you don't ask, you don't receive So the casting director email got back to me and was like, yeah, I'm sorry. You got to start from the beginning with everybody else, you know, da, da, da. And then I was like, okay, I accepted that. And then the info at the NBC, The Voice email, somebody there was like, hey, I'm going to see what I can do. And then I got a notification from them that, hey, we were able to get you a appointment. Basically, what I asked is what I was getting to be able to advance to that round. So I felt so lucky and yes, this is good. This is a good sign. So I fly to Chicago. My friend Ashley Birch meets me out there. And at this time, we weren't yet super tight. She was just like such a dope person. I met her through my friend Chandrell. And she was like, I believe in you. I'm going to be there. Like, where are we going? When? Okay, I'm going to be there. So the morning of, I couldn't get a hold of her. So she was flying in from a different city, from Kansas City. By this time, I'm in my rental car and I'm like, looking, I didn't get a response from her. I'm like, okay, I got to take off. Like, I'm sorry. Cause I was calling. It was going to voicemail. Turns out she was on the plane. So when she touched down, like I literally just got in my rental car about to leave. She said, I'm here. I'm like, look. <laughs> so I go and I get her. She is so sick. And she's like, it's not a hangover. I don't know. Cause she had went out the night before, but she was like, this is something else. I don't know if it was like a bug or what. She was like leaned over. She was in bad shape. And like for the f- the fact that she woke up and still decided to come and support me, I'm just forever grateful to her. So I'm like, let's get a hotel because we had some time between my audition time. It was like 10 in the morning or something. So I look online and I'm like, I'm trying to save money. So I'm like the nearest hotel, the nearest cheapest hotel. <laughs> we got a one star hotel. <laughs> and I was like a one star. I'm like, I never stayed in a one star, but it can't be that bad. I'm like, somebody's probably just like giving the hotel a bad review or something. We got there. There was like, we didn't even want to sleep under the covers. We kept our shoes on, but we were tired (laughs) and she wasn't feeling well. So we slept over the covers with our shoes on. So we went on. I did the audition. I saw that bodyguard. He was like, I remember you. He was like, you had your daughter with you last time. I'm like, yeah, I remember you too. You gave me a talking to for having her. He's yeah, he's good to see you. Da, da, da. So he was all nice and stuff. Shout out to him. I don't know his name. But anyway, I thought that was cool that like he remembered me from, you know, this other city when yeah. they see like tons of people all the right. time. So I went in and the casting people like remembered me too. Some of them, not all of them. But I was like, okay, name, face recognition. This is good. This is good. So I did my thing, sang. I sang Diamonds. I sang a couple other songs I can't think of. I think I probably did Killing Me Softly again. And so three songs I prepared just like the last time, last round. Did the interview. Everything felt good. And they said, wait, about a month, wait. If you hear back from us by this date, then we'll tell you the next steps. If you don't, thank you. That means you're not advancing. It was the last day of the wait to hear back date. And I'm at my computer. I'm an 
IT analyst or programmer analyst at Securian Financial Group. Shout out to them. It's a great company. I really enjoyed working for them. They were very supportive of me this whole process too. I'm sitting there and I'm like, I was holding out hope though. They said, if I don't hear back by this date, then, and I'm not going to lose hope until after that date, right? I opened my email. They were like, we're excited to let you, it was the big yeah. news. And so I'm in my cubicle like, you know, I couldn't scream, but I was so happy. And I'm like celebrating in my chair and doing a little wiggle. So from there, it was round. It was multiple pre-televised rounds. And then the next step from that point was we're going to fly you out to L.A. to meet the producers. And you're going to audition for the executive producers. And I was so excited. I had never been to L.A. before. And I had never seen palm trees. And I'm like, I want to see palm trees before I die. So this is like me fulfilling a bucket list item. So it's wonderful. That whole process, it was a little bit of back and forth. We had to do the executives, then we had to wait, wait and see again. You know, if you hear back from us by this date, then you're moving on to the next round. The next round was choosing your song and um, rehearsing it with the band that was going to be supporting mm -hmm. you for the live round. And then after that, you still wait and see whether you're coming back. And How many rounds in between when you're like invited yeah. versus when you're actually a show? So I guess, so there's the cattle call round and there's the um, round where you do another three songs. Then there's like the interview, if you will, you can consider those one round if you want. And then there's the fly you out to do the executive audition, like executive producers. Then there's come back and rehearse with the band. And then there's come back and then you're working on your choreography and everything where you're working the stage and they give you pointers, you do wardrobe. They're not evaluating you at that point. Now you're like assumed to be on the show as long as there's space on the team. So then they have two days of blind auditions and they're very, they like seclude. You can't talk to the people who already auditioned. So you have no idea where things are at when you go into audition. And the teams maybe, there may be like three spots left. They don't want you to know any of that. They want to know, they don't want you to know ah. who made it, who didn't. You don't know any of that. So you could have gone through... Working with the band, choreography, oh, wardrobe, all of it, and still and not gotten... Still not been able to be on the show. Ooh. Yeah, not at that point, it wouldn't have been because they cut you. It would just be because they're picking and choosing who to put in front of the judges when, but then when once the judges pick their, I think it's like 12 people on a team, then there's no more space. So you could have been amazing. and You just didn't get up. You just didn't get on there. So then those people, unfortunately, it's so heartbreaking to think about that because lots of people that I met were in that predicament where they didn't get to audition at all because the teams filled up. And I auditioned on the last day on the, no, it wasn't um, my audition. Nope, sorry. I'm thinking about the knockout rounds. I found myself in that position where I got knocked out by Tess Ann Chen who went on to um, win the show, shout out to her. She's awesome. And I was rooting for her the whole way after I got knocked off. But they have saves and other coaches can save you yeah. and say, I want you to be on my team. And the coaches were like, man, we would like, especially Blake, Blake, he loved me. It was a moment. But he didn't have any saves. Nobody else had any saves except for my coach, Adam Levine. But he couldn't save me back to his team. So I was in that predicament where that's how the cookie crumbled. Yeah. So Anyway, if they would have put me up against her earlier in the day, I could have got a save. So that's where it's like probably producer pulling strings and doing things because they know the probability. They knew I wasn't going to win my match. The fact that they put me up when all the saves were gone, they probably were ready for me to be off the show for whatever reason. That's fine, too. But there's like a good seven rounds before you see people on the show. 
how far six or seven. how how many into the show i made it to the top 32 so they start off with 48 people and then they cut it down after the battle rounds i won the battle round and then they cut it down even further after the knockout round i didn't make it to the yeah, knockout okay. round so i survived two rounds in and got it off yeah. on the third okay you're off at that point, mm -hmm. but obviously it's just such a huge accomplishment to get on the show and mm -hmm. there's all of the local press and there's all the excitement around it and all that kind of stuff. Right. Walk us through what the aftermath looks like. Obviously there's a lot of benefits, but there's got to be a lot of- Okay. So like I was off the show for a while before I could like, I wanted my family and friends to get the excitement of not knowing as they're watching live with everybody else. And they tell you, you sign a agreement not to tell anybody the results of your show but people can deduce especially the people you live with wait you're here and we're watching so you didn't make it yeah. but when it initially happened i because there was a lot of stop and wait so they don't know they could still think i might be able to go on but so it was a lot of secrecy so i could honor and not only honor the agreement but just honored like the excitement that i wanted my friends and family to have while they're watching the show and then once it was out that I was off the show, that was in October. But like the reality, like I was really off the show in August. You know what I'm saying? But it didn't air until October. I started working on my music right away because I was like, I want to drop an album. I want to capitalize on this opportunity. So I put out like an acoustic version of my first album. That was music that was already written. And that mm -hmm. was you know, a way to get content out there, reintroduce some content. And oh, no, I dropped that before I signed the I dropped that beforehand. Sorry. So rewind. I dropped an acoustic version of something more because I wanted to put some music out and I didn't want them to have claims to my music because certain things you sign, if you release anything or write anything while you're on the show, they can have ownership of it. That's just how the agreement went. Once I was like out of the agreement period, I think that's when I started like working on my next album, which was Be You. And that got pushed out and that didn't actually come out until 2015 but it was supposed to come out in 2014 a lot of interviews a lot of performances and things where like I did a show at Honey which is no longer around I feel like I've said this so much in this interview a lot changed after COVID for sure yeah so, so Honey went down with COVID but that was one of my favorite places to perform I, I did my album release show for something more there I did a couple other like of my own productions there and it was just like John, who was the booking agent there, he was always so gracious and wonderful to work with. And it was like the right size where you could feel like you could pack out a show and the vibe was like intimate, like a speakeasy and stuff. Anyway, I remember I did a show there and there was a line around the corner and I'm like, they're here for me? Like people were like, it was crazy. I had never experienced that before. So that was cool because yeah. obviously with the name recognition and like the exposure and people getting to hear you and know you and like you, now there's more people to come to the shows and more people to want to book you. and more. So it was like busy in that way. The humble beginnings of just you know, high school, your friend, you start doing home recordings, you meet other producers, you start making a full length record, you go on The Voice, you have mm -hmm. success there, you make another record, you're getting hometown press, you're getting voted best vocalist, you're mm -hmm. getting all this stuff, right? Momentum, momentum. Right. But then shortly after the second album, you join up with the cover band, right? Right. Well, where did that decision come? What was the reasoning for doing that? I got the call. They were looking for a, a, a second female singer. They had two male singers. And a female singer, they wanted another one. And I, someone recommended me and they reached out and I was like, oh, the opportunity to perform and get paid. And it's like a regular thing. Sounded good to me. And be able to travel. Yep. 
It sounded like a good opportunity. I hadn't traveled to perform up until that point. I was mainly performing in Minnesota. Mm -hmm. So I think that was what appealed to me about the opportunity. When they said four hours, I was like, the longest set I was doing up until that point was like 45 minutes. So I was like, my voice is going to be tired. Like, how am I going to do four hours? And for a long time, I would leave those shows just hoarse. But I build up stamina over the years. But anyway, yeah, that's what appealed to me. The opportunity to travel. Sure. I'm like, I never had anybody ask me to be a part of something that allows me to not have to do all the work and booking and everything. And I get, I'm able to just come, sing, get paid, and they'll fly me around. That sounded nice. Yeah, definitely. I want you to talk more about the cover band experience because Mm -hmm. you do music at least part-time, but almost full-time at this point in terms of the amount of work that you're doing and that sort of stuff. And we'll get into some of the other lines of income and stuff like that, but the cover band's a big piece of that. And it's a great way to have, to maintain a a career as a musician. And I know several people that do it, you being one, walk us through what that looks like, what a typical year in the cover band is like. Okay. I will say when I first started, I was embarrassed about it because I thought it was cheesy. I felt like I was a wedding singer and like I went from being on The Voice and wanting to be this like well-known original artist to singing songs that personally I feel are very cheesy, weren't like representative of me as an artist. And so I didn't really appreciate it for years. And I wouldn't post about it because I was like, I don't want people to be like, wait, what? Ashley Bowles, the artist, is not like doing covers and like wearing these sparkly dresses and stuff. (laughs) That's not even my brand. But I grew to appreciate it, especially after COVID. But yeah, I I felt like I want to be doing my own. These people don't know who I am. How how am I going to expand my brand if they don't know who I am by name and they can't hear me sing my music? Like... I'm doing these artist songs who've already made it big. But the thing about it is you're able as an entertainer, because there's like there's artists, there's entertainers and cover band singers are both because there's an art form in capturing the essence and the emotion of somebody else's writing and songs and being able to portray that. Mm -hmm. And you're entertaining people because you're doing it at a high level like obviously like you got to be good if you're not going to last too long but like people are having a good time they're watching you perform songs that they're familiar with so they're not like sitting there like just trying to learn the song or like hearing the song for the first time they're like already into it from the first four bars because they know this song so you're performing songs that have been tried and true and stood the test of time you're still entertaining and you're still being an artist you're just not able to do your original work but you can sing songs in an original way you can take Mm -hmm. and interpret it to a certain extent but i didn't appreciate it i didn't look at it that way i like the money and everything but i was Mm -hmm. i want to sing my own song i want to so i was bringing business cards to the gigs i've stopped doing that (laughs) but (laughs) i thought i had failed but as i continued on in my journey in life and in music i realized that it's a blessing to be able to use my gifts to sing to perform and be able to get paid to do it. And when I look out into the crowd of people and they're just having a great time and everybody always comes up afterwards, or a lot, not everybody, but a lot of people always come up afterwards and be like, you guys were so amazing. You're the best wedding band. I've been to a million weddings and this is like the best. And they just have such a good time and the bride and groom are so happy and we're part of these people's biggest day of their life. One of the biggest days of their life. That's pretty important and that's pretty like remarkable i now appreciate it and then when 
when COVID hit my entire performance calendar, both cover band and original requests for Ashley DuBose, the artist, all got pulled off the calendar. And I sat there and I was like, dang, how am I going to make money? Am I ever going to perform again? Dang, I didn't appreciate the band. Just when we were able to come back to it, I just had a brand new appreciation for everybody in the band, for what I do. And it's funny because my bandmate, Katie, she would say, Ashley, there's going to be a day where we can't perform anymore and you're going to be sad about that. In other words, enjoy, be grateful. This is a blessing. Like how many people get to do, how many singers who are actually amazing get to get on stage, get paid to travel. We've stayed in four or five star hotels. Better than one star hotels. Yeah, we've stayed in two star (laughs) hotels. But we've had some really cool experiences seeing some parts of the world that like otherwise I would never have any business going. What's the coolest gigs with Nar that you've done? Or more extravagant or whatever. Okay, so we're managed by a company in New York. They have just really big budget clients, right? People with money. Like one guy, he was like the director of Avatar and Men in Black and like, I want to say Star Wars. And not Star Wars, maybe not Star Wars. But like he was like a really big name in Hollywood and a director in Hollywood. And his stepdaughter was getting married. So we did her wedding and Robin Thicke sang three songs and we sang back up for Robin Thicke. <laughs> there was another, uh, who's the guy that sings, that's just the way it is. Things will never be the same. Phil something. We'll find it. Is it Phil Collins? We'll but we did it. a birthday party. I don't think it was a surprise birthday party, but we did do a surprise wedding most recently where the guests were surprised. They didn't know they were being invited to a wedding. Some people might have been tipped off that it was a um, wedding, but we did that. That was fun. We couldn't talk about it because it was in Aspen and Aspen's a really small town and you never know who knows somebody. So we went to this guitar shop to get a piano for Ryan, the keyboardist, to be able to practice his songs. And I'm thinking they say, don't say anything about the wedding when you're on set. I'm like, oh, not on set, but on site because you don't want like guests to get tipped off. They meant don't say anything at all because this town is small. But I was like, yeah, so we got this surprise wedding that we're doing tomorrow at this private residence and everything. And wouldn't you know, the word got back to the band leader and was like, you guys, reminder, don't say anything because this is a very small town. (laughs) And I'm like, how did he find out? What? So it was crazy. The artist um, was Bruce Hornsby, by the way. Okay, yeah, that's who it was. So he, we did a birthday party where he was the special guest and he was playing his originals and stuff on piano. So we got to see and hear him live. The weddings are so extravagant. And for me, I, sometimes I don't even concern myself with who, who's who. I used to be like, who's this one? Who's that? Like we did an like, Olympic and Olympic skaters wedding. And it's more the beauty of these weddings. Like they're like multi-million dollar wedding. Not all the time, but they put a lot of money into the decor and the flowers and the the venue and it's just like this dream wedding like you walk into a catalog wedding and you're like we're part of this like in the stage decked out and it's really cool to be a part of such a spectacular occasion absolutely so what about like the nitty-gritty the day-to-day of the cover band like what are the logistics like how many gigs do you do a year on average do you get to pick and choose are you required to do everything that they throw at you like how often are rehearsals mm-hmm. how does all of that work I think it's about an average of 40 gigs a year the wedding season is approximately April through I'd say November the bulk of our gigs being summer months October also October and September so like basically between June and October, it's like a lot of them. There's some other scattered dates. 
throughout the years on the other side. At this point, we've been working together so frequently. We really don't have to rehearse unless we have. We had a gig recently where we had like maybe 10 songs in Spanish. So we had to make sure. Yeah, one of our singers, she's Puerto Rican and she speaks Spanish, but everybody else, we had to really work at that and make sure we were like on point because it was a, I think it was a Colombian bride or a Colombian room. One of the two were Colombian and the other was Jewish. Basically, whenever we're doing something like really, you know, a bunch of new songs that are really intricate, whether it's like a new language or like a really funky tune or something, it'll call for a rehearsal. For the most part, we've done so many gigs and so many songs so many times that we know we just need to know what we're playing, listen to it. We're all professionals, learn it. And then we run the special tunes at rehear- at um the sound check. So we use that as our rehearsal. When everybody's good enough, that's enough. Yeah. Usually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's pretty much what it is. And we'll, if we're doing a gig out of town, we usually travel the day before, come back the, the next day. So it'll be like a time commitment. Do you get options? Like in terms of scheduling, they say, hey, we got a gig. They would like to, us to prioritize the cover band. But if something comes up, it, if I get booked for something and it's enough in advance, two months out, they're usually okay with finding a sub. The musicians can find subs a lot easier than the front men because yep. we're like the face of the band and yeah. they don't like to book based on a lineup. And then when the day comes, the lineup has changed, especially like there's a booking that the couple really wanted us, like they really like my sound or something. It'll be pretty hard to like, yeah. Go back and be like, yeah, she's not going to be there. So, so it's definitely a commitment. I mean, it's, it is a commitment. Yes. Yeah. But you've said eight or nine years now. How many people are in the band total? We started off four front men. Now we have five. So three women, two men. And depending on the booking, sometimes they'll have all three of the women or sometimes just two of us. So either four or five front men. Then we have a core four. So bass, guitar, drums, and keys. And then we'll add on horns and strings as desired by the client is the whole band from minnesota yes our drummer is now like between minnesota and las vegas so he'll fly from las vegas to minnesota to wherever our destination is depending on the circumstance but basically everybody's based in minnesota when we travel and we have add-on instruments then they'll book locally or more local Mm -hmm. we do gigs in like aspen they'll hire a horn section from denver strings from the nearest uh, city so the, the group that manages the cover band, do they have multiple bands that they're managing then? Yeah. Yes, they have about 38, Yeah, maybe. Last time I checked, The different states and... Yeah. Yeah, I get it then. They do events all around the world. Wow. I think they did Michael Jordan's wedding. Yeah, I did a wedding in 2016, I think it was, in London. They've done some Latin American country, but I wasn't on that. And then we did Anguilla recently, Maui, but... That's the United States, but you know. Yeah, it's off the mainland. Yeah, that's so cool. All right, well, let's keep moving. So we've kind of covered the solo career. We've covered the time on The Voice. We've Mm -hmm. covered the cover band stuff, which is still today. Mm -hmm. What's going on today with your solo career? I still perform solo. I have a lot of galas coming up um, this month. I do a lot of community events and things. Um, I haven't put my own event on in a while, pretty much since I was pregnant with my last child. So. It's been about two years since I put on my own, like Ashley DuBose Entertainment Prison. Kids have a way of slowing that down. Yeah, my, my focus have just been, when I put on events, I think it's like a feeling of, what prompts me to do that? Maybe a feeling of, I haven't been doing anything. I need to stay active and mm. I need to do something. 
But I've been keeping active enough with performances between the cover band and like getting hired for other people's events that there's not really that space or that feeling of I need to do something in this time period for myself to stay active. So there, there hasn't been that real need or availability. Yeah, I haven't created much. I feel bad about that. Like I haven't had that creative juice flowing or whatever you want to call it. I don't know what to talk about. I think about a lot of stuff, but I don't know what I want to put in song. I think my mind is just way too analytical right now to be creative and mm. feel like putting my thoughts into some clever lyrical. Analytical because of some of the other stuff you're doing? Just the other work? I've always been analytical. but You have a BA in mathematics. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know, right? So if I start to come up with something, I think myself out of it. Who cares? Why would anybody want to hear this? Or like, it's too literal. Or it's, I just, I think myself out of creativity, if I'm gonna be honest. Do you think that applies to like just thinking yourself out of pursuing opportunities or taking risks and that sort of thing too? I do that too. I've wanted to move to LA forever, but I think there's already a million people there who are amazing at what they do and are still trying to get on. The analytical like, thing. Why what myself, are my odds? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. What are my odds? When I get out there, do I even have the stamina anymore or like the desire to try and stand out? At this point, I want to go because the weather is nice <laughs> and like the vibe yeah. and the culture and just like having a new life experience where I'm not driving down the same streets and highways all the time. It's just some like like newness. And maybe there's an opportunity that can come up because whenever I am there, I feel like really cool serendipitous things always happen. But cool serendipitous things happen here too. So maybe it's like opportunity will follow me Hopefully, as long as God allows, because I, I don't want to sound cocky when I say that. But so, yeah, I've thought myself out of taking that risk. Early on in my recording days, I had a client that was crazy and I could do an entire podcast on this client of how insane he was. But I want to hear that. He was. Yeah, <laughs> I have a lot of stories about this guy. We had a conversation once and he always was doing crazy stuff in terms of trying to get noticed and stuff like that. Mm hmm. And he would say, oh, I want you to like email somebody for me. Can you email the president of the twins and tell them to play my song or like some random thing? I would just always roll my eyes like that's not going to work because some of it was just, you know, not a great idea. Mm -hmm. I, it still st sticks with me today. And I remembered it when you brought up being analytical. He said, you're too smart. You'll never be successful because you'll just. You. Yeah. Because you'll just think your way out of everything. It's a real thing. And it's a real thing. And so if anybody out there is listening, can relate to that. We're reasoning with yourself of why not to do things and mm -hmm. stuff. But a lot of the, the music industry is about just jumping into the unknown and doing stuff that you aren't sure about and pushing forward. And that stuck with me. And I've tried to think about when is it a good thing to be analytical? Because there are plenty of reasons mm -hmm. to be analytical. But there are times where... You just got to take risks and big or small. Maybe it's a risk like moving to LA, but also maybe it's a risk of just getting outside of your bubble and collaborating with new people. Maybe it's trying a new type of promotional thing, deciding that you're going to be more active on social media. You're going to do those TikTok trends. You're going to mm -hmm. do whatever, like right. things that you, you might just feel uncomfortable about, or maybe it's switching your sound up. Maybe it's just trying to find new bandmates, something right. like that. Those are all uncomfortable things. Right. And you can talk your way into the more comfortable route pretty easily. Mm -hmm. But it's something that you have to self-reflect on a somewhat regular basis to decide, like, where am I? Am I playing it too safe right now? Right. Or am I pushing myself ahead? I, I've always heard it said, if you're not doing something that scares you a little bit, you're probably not pushing far enough. Huh? I know, and I hate that saying, because I'm like, who wants to be scared? Like, <laughs> exactly. who doesn't want to be comfortable? <laughs>
But, but I know, I know you're you're preaching. Uh, yeah, and I, I'm saying this for myself as much mm-hmm. as anything because I'll find that I, I get into a, this is comfortable. Mm-hmm. I know what I'm doing. I've got my routine down. This is the way I'm running my business and so on. And that voice will creep up in the back of my mind again. Of, do you think you could do more or make something better? Or even what can you cut out? What's not adding to yep. anymore? What are the things that you're doing that really aren't worth it, but you're just doing them because they're comfortable? You know, for me, this podcast is one of those things. It's like I've, I've had the idea for years, but it's a lot of work and it's somewhat uncomfortable to put yourself out there and do all those kind of things and pushing forward, whether it lasts for years or a short period of time, who knows, but you just got to try. Yeah, because then you don't have to have that podcast idea that you never did. Clear. No, yeah, you're right. Like I'm the poster child for staying comfortable. That's like my vibe because I I look at other people and I'm like, what's come out of people who made it to where I think I want to go? What's come of that? And I'll just give myself a bunch of reasons why it's not worth it. And I'm like, I'm good right here. It's working. To some extent, that also might be true because the end goal isn't always like, I need to be the best at this or I need to be the most known for this or fill in the blanks of fame and fortune. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the goal is I feel fulfilled. I have a creative outlet mm-hmm. doing what I want to do, whether or not it's anybody that you know or mm-hmm. whatever, that may not be the goal. Mm-hmm. We all have our own reasons. So I think when I say about the self-reflection and, and looking into these things, it's about making those decisions for yourself, not based on what other people would decide. Exactly. But what do you think is best for you? And if you feel fulfilled, then then that is. Right. I know that I'm not like settled in who I am as a person. I know I have a lot of work to do, but I do feel like I'm more in a place of feeling very comfortable with myself than I have been in previous years. I don't know if that has to do with getting older, having another child, having been in a relationship where I felt appreciated and enough and having that validation from external or being in a comfortable financial situation where I'm like, I don't want to take certain risks anymore because you work so I have more to, to lose. Exactly. So there's different reasons maybe for why I feel in a place of comfort, but that's not to say that I don't see that there's growth that can be had because I I need to also, you know, work therapy, maybe even challenging myself to create from a place of just creating because I have the gift and not because I want to make the next hit or get somebody's attention or become a world known singer, but just for the simple fact of it was something that I enjoyed at one point. And I was doing before I even had anybody listening. Mm-hmm. How do I get back to that? How do I put creation and music back in my life in that way versus a means to an end? Yeah, but I appreciate what you shared. And I, I will be self-reflecting more after <laughs> this. Well, you know, to tie on to the, the analytical, one thing that I admire about you and I think that you've done really well is the diversification of income. When we were talking before this interview, you mm-hmm. shared that you're also in real estate and- I know that you used some of the money that you were making from doing music to mm-hmm. save up and invest in something outside of the music industry that yeah. would give you some more stability. Can you talk a little bit about that? So I own three duplexes in addition to my single family home that I live in. I think it's so important for us, especially as uh, creatives who don't have a nine to five or like a more secure 401k or like a plan for their financial security down the line. 
because it's we're in a business that's very up and down. You might be in high demand now, but what happens when the calls start slowing up? And so I realized that I need to, and especially being a mother and having a family, I need to make sure that I'm setting ourselves up for a more secure financial future. I started listening to a guy who teaches about multifamily investing. And at first I was looking into buying a home just to own a home because I know owning a home, you can build equity and like it's a smart financial decision is what I thought of it as. And I was working at Securian when I first started looking into it, but I kept getting to a certain point and not going all the way through, like through with it to buy. Like I would get pre-approved, but then I wouldn't take the next step to look around and buy a house. So I would start and then I not go all the way. And then, then I met with a real estate agent who has her own team and I think she's a broker, actually. She's a broker. And she said, your first purchase, I would highly recommend it be a duplex because you can build equity quicker. You'll have that rental income coming in and it reduces your mortgage expense because that's helping pay down your mortgage. And so from that point, I started looking for duplexes. And then that's when this man, Julian Gordon, came into my world somehow. And I signed up for his teach for his multifamily movement classes and teachings and stuff. And I would tune in. I wasn't super consistent. I didn't even do the entire modules and everything because I'm like the person that I'm ready to just jump in. Like, I don't want to read everything first. I'm like, it takes so much time. I just want to do it for better or for worse. So now I went ahead and bought my first property and then I bought my second one. And then then I bought my, bought my single family and then I bought a fourth property and all within the span of about a year and a half. Oh, wow. Yeah. Because once you have income from your not only your job but like your rental when you go to get a mortgage they're counting all your income it's actually not that hard to get more properties except for once you buy your second property is considered an investment and you you need to put 25 percent of the value down so you do have to have some funds some reserves saved up but that first property to get into you really if you're going to live in it you you only have to put three and a half percent down if you get an fha loan it's easier to get into that first property then once you save up some money or if you already have some money saved up, if you come into some money or whatever, then you can take that money and use your income from whoever's renting out at your current duplex. Then you say you can either stay in that one or you can even move to the next one and put three, three and a half percent down on that second one instead of 25 percent. You can do that game. People do that all the time by living it for a year, move to the next one, living it for a year, move to the next one. So each time you're not having to put so much money into sure. it. And all the while, that income coming in from the units you're renting out is considered when you go for your mortgage on top of your regular income. Yeah. It's very possible. It sounds wild, and it is wild, but it's possible. And I was lucky enough to have some money that was just sitting. I'm like, we could just sit and sit and not do anything and make anything. Or I could put this money in this house. I just moved my money from TuneCore and, and some funds that were in the bank, sitting making nothing, and I put it into the house. So now I have... Three doors, no, not three doors, three properties, six doors, and it's worked. I had a crash course in being a landlord in the first two years. I, I shared it with you, but one of my properties had a fire incident, and so it took a year, over a year, to get repaired. And I luckily have insurance that replaced that lost rental income, but after that was depleted, I was paying a mortgage that I wasn't making any money on. So Things got a little tight for a second, but now it's about to be done and I can rent it out again or I could sell it. So I'm at that point where I'm trying to make that decision. But I think real estate is a great source of building wealth and financial security. You got to buy smart. You can't just go in blindly and just buy something. It helps to have some teaching and somebody like a mentor or if you're following somebody on YouTube and 
or coming to a class or whatever to know how to select homes so you're buying right. But yeah, that's been one mode of income for me, one source of income. And then I got my real estate license because I was like, I know this whole process. Why am I, I could be saving money and negotiating my own deals and, and having more flexibility and access instead of having a real estate agent have to be like the go between for me. Because after buying four properties, I felt pretty like experienced. So I was like, let me get my license. So the next property I buy, I can get the buying agent fee from the seller because the seller pays the buying agent a fee. And then the next property I sell, I don't have to pay an agent to do it. I can do it myself. So that was the motivator to get my realtor, my realtor's license or my, my real estate license. Realtor is a member of the Realtor Association, which I am, but I need to be clear when I'm, with my words. But now I'm really excited to help other people who are who want to buy their first property. And I'm always going to recommend that they buy a duplex first, especially when you're coming from not having a lot. It just helps you get your foot in the door and it manages the expense of owning a home a little better. When you have a single family, everything's on you and nobody's, you're not bringing money in, you're just putting money out. So anyway, so now I'm excited to help other people buy as well. When did you get your real estate license? In March of 2023. So okay, I've only so had it for six this months is, now. Okay, got it. Mm-hmm. And when did you start doing the properties? In July 2021 is when I bought my first property. Well, congrats. That's pretty Thank awesome. You. I'm sure, yeah. Long term, it's a great move. As long as you can avoid all the fires. For real. Literal, <laughs> literally and figuratively. <laughs> yeah. Eventually, I'm going to hire a property management company so I can... You're doing all that on your own? Wow. It's impressive. Yeah. I already know that's a ton of work. Yeah. It's um, a lot of phone calls and Yeah. I've had to mediate between tenants. Yeah. Because they're living in such close proximity to each other yeah. in a duplex. Yeah. Yeah. That's a little bit of a segue to one of the other questions that I've had, which is you've been in charge of your career, right? And for many years and you've been on big stages, big opportunities, all this kind of stuff. Bought properties and you're you're in the thick of the business, right? <laughs> And when it comes to negotiating gigs and contracts and all that stuff, you're handling all of that as well? Yes. The short answer is yes. When I do the cover band stuff, I'm just hired on. The contracts are negotiated between the clients and the management company. Yeah. But I have, I've had to go to bat for my, myself in regards of my pay and like things like that over the years. So, yeah, I mean, I have a friend who I can call on. He's a former artist and... I've had to have him stand in for me and represent me as my managerial assistant because as a woman and as an artist, mm. like double whammy when you're trying to like negotiate contracts, like automatically when they, when somebody sees that an artist doesn't have management and of the mindset that it gives an indication that the artist might not be as valuable or you can get the artist for a, a cheaper deal or whatever the case may be. There's been times where I felt like in this situation, I'm going to have you talk to them and negotiate things. And we'll talk like, you know what I want, but you'll be my mouthpiece. But for the most part, I'm the one definitely drafting all the contracts and making sure um, I'm clear on all the terms that, you know, we have. So we have clear expectations on both ends as an artist and as a client. And then communicating that down the line to whoever else needs to know whether that's my band or my accompanist and was that mostly self-taught or was this other friend acting as a mentor along those lines too? No, it was mostly self-taught. I learned by trial and error as well. Like 
actually, I've gotten burnt when I had a contract in place where I didn't get a penny of my money. Somebody straight scammed me and I was opening up for a national act. And I guess they didn't get the money that they thought they were going to get for the gig. And I had in the contract that I was supposed to get my deposit. Or no, I didn't make that contract. Somebody else made that contract for me. Mm. But he was not there when the event took place. And my stylist, had, who was a friend of mine, she went to go get the money from the person, but they had a reason for, oh, my partner's on his way with the money kind of thing. So I ended up getting mm-hmm. up on stage doing my show. After the performance, the promoter was nowhere to be found. So that was like a $2,000 gig that I got zero for. And I was so mad. And I said, never again. So to this day, 90% of the time, I require a contract. I require a deposit up front. I don't care if the gig is seven days away. I need half now and half later. Now, sometimes I'll be lenient on that, especially if it's an establishment that I trust that they're not going to. But I had to learn what to put in a contract. Sometimes you get to a situation, you're like, oh, shoot, we should have specified that. We should have made sure this was understood. Or even learning through the North Star gigs, what the kind of accommodations we get will inform me if I'm being booked out of state, what to require for an out-of-state gig, lodging, ground travel. We need to discuss all these points because it might just be a situation where you're more experienced than the person booking you. This is a real-life example. I was more experienced in event, like, performance contracts than the person. They were just like a CEO of a company, and they were putting on this uh, event. and had well intentions, but the details really mattered because when it came down to it, I was still learning, oh, next time I got to do this and this. So it's basically like trial and error, learning from experience what's really important to have in a contract and what's nice to have, like a rider. And we want to make sure we have a meal. We want everybody to be fed. Stuff that you might not think of until you have had that experience and realize that's even possible. You're like, oh, yeah. we're performing for an event where all yeah. of their guests are eating. They can probably put some meals aside for us. Let's go ahead and make that a request. Yeah. That's how I've learned. Well, I think the takeaway there is that obviously trial and error sometimes is just what you have to do. Yeah, right. But if you can do some research online, there are so many templates. Yeah. And you start, now there's ChatGPT, which can help with contracts, which is oh. obviously not going to be as good as a lawyer, but it's better than nothing. Right. If it's, a, if it's a kind of a deal where the money is such that a lawyer makes sense, then go ahead and do that. But mm-hmm. if you're just trying to yeah, cover why? your ass kind of deal, yeah then ChatGPT is probably going to get you pretty close. Yeah. Um, Actually, the contract that I have now, a lawyer did draft it for me. I had a team that I was able to tap into a resource that had free legal assistance for artists through, Mm -hmm. I think it was Springboard for the Arts, which is based in St. Paul. At one point was like just drafting it from like a template online. And then I had a lawyer put one together. Now I just edit that one. Yeah. You can do your research. But you can also ask people, ask people that are a little bit farther ahead of you that have had this sort of experience, you know, offer to take somebody out to coffee, pick their brain, yes. and you can learn a lot that way. And that's part of what this podcast is for, is to encourage people to share and to connect and to learn from each other because yeah. what one person, what you may not know, another person maybe has done a million times and it's no big deal for them to just point you in the right direction to, oh, well, check out this book or check yeah. out this online resource or whatever, or call this other person because they know even more about it than I do. And yeah. I actually took Des out to coffee um, years ago. Mm. And after working with her a couple of times and I felt comfortable enough to ask her, like, how do I do this? And she gave me some resources and look into this company for like college gigs and bookings and different things like that. 
She asked me for a list of questions. It's really important if you're going to do that, especially for people with, who are like really busy. Just assume everybody's busy. It's good to have a list of questions ahead of time of what you want to get out of that conversation. If you have specific questions, you can send them ahead of time even so that they have time to look into something that they might not be able to answer on the spot. So yeah, that's a good tip to take people who are already in the industry, maybe out to lunch or coffee and in exchange for giving you some insight. You can save yourself a lot of headaches potentially with just a short conversation. Even if it's not a direct answer, it can at least be making sure you're not heading in the completely wrong direction. Mm -hmm. There's a, just a couple other little things I want to touch on quickly, and you can go as in-depth or keep it brief if you want. But okay. I'm curious about how you got into the voice acting and the actual acting and what that role is in your career right now. And I'm also curious about how much stuff you've done in the sync world. Okay. So I took an acting class in college back in 2020, 2012, and it was called auditioning. And then one of the requirements in this class was to take your skills that, or the tips and things that you've learned and as a capstone or a final assignment, go out and actually audition. And I waited to the last minute and then I got on minnesotaplaylist.org, which is the website where you can find out different plays and things that are auditioning. And the Guthrie had a production. I had to find something that worked with my schedule and like this production or this audition lined up. So I really didn't know how world-renowned or like how like prestigious the Guthrie was or yeah. even what I was auditioning for. I was going into this. I'm trying to get this assignment done, not land the, the role. But I landed the role. <laughs> it's, it was a non-speaking essential or like an extra. But, so you're an essential. You're essential to the play, but we're not going to pay you very much. And yeah. you're not going to speak. But it was a great experience. I got to see all the behind the scenes. I was a part of all 53 shows and all the rehearsals and everything. Like I was wow. in the play. What was the production? A Streetcar Named Desire. How oh, could I not yeah. name the production? A Streetcar Named Desire in 2010. My daughter was less than a year old and I was in school full time. Mm. I was just moving and shaking. And so did cool. that lead to more work then? Oh, yeah, I wasn't done. That led to me meeting other artists on set. And I'm like, how do I do this? Like y'all are doing this. It, it was just one of those conversations where here's some agencies to reach out to, send them your resume, send, your, send them your um, headshot. So I went and sent out like the most unprofessional cell phone headshot. I had it blown up at Walmart, or not Walmart, Walgreens. <laughs> Got it like on an eight by eight. It was back when and nothing was digital. Everything was yeah, physical. Yeah, yeah. So I stapled my resume to the back, like old school style. Anyway, and I sent it to a bunch of agencies. And so now I'm represented by five agencies, but I'm not super active with all of them. I'm with Nuts, Wayman, Agency Models and Talent, Karen, and More Talent. So I'm like with all of them among all their rosters, but I only really do a lot of work with Agency, Nuts. So anyway, long story short, that's how I got representation. Then a couple years down the road, Laura at Nuts, she owns Nuts and she's amazing. She said, Ashley, you have a really nice voice. Have you ever thought of voiceover? And I'm like, what's that? I didn't even know what it was. So she sent me some information. I came in to do a meeting with her and got information. Tell people what it is. There's going to be other people oh, that don't know. Voiceover. So voiceover is like when you're reading a script that's going to be either synced to a video or it's going to air on the radio. It's going to be on a commercial or now a lot of things are like internet usage and things. Like when you're watching YouTube or whatever and you see a commercial come on and there's a voiceover, that's what voiceover is. People do audio books. I haven't done that yet. I think that'd be fun, but that's a lot of work. But anyway, industrial training videos. I've done radio. I've done Cub is a, a repeat client of Nuts. Mm -hmm. They asked me to do their commercials. So you'll be listening to Cub or I'll get a phone call if somebody's listening to 
or watching TV and they're like, is that you on the cut commercial? Oh my God, I just heard you. Mall of America, like healthcare, like United Healthcare, like just random stuff yeah. that they need a warm voice or a really excited. Like <laughs> it's just acting with your give voice. Us, give us a sample of your voiceover. Okay. Get up close. All right. Do the whole thing. I need a script because now I'm just like making stuff up. Hold on. Give me a second. I'm trying to channel yeah, my yeah. Cub Take commercial. This Thursday and Friday at Cub with your My Cub Rewards app, get 30% off of all fresh produce. I mean, like, I can't, I can't think and say <laughs> it. That's good. It's, it's really not that good. Hold you on. I wish I had a voice for it, But though. you know what I'm saying? Yeah. You bring the energy. You yeah. sell the script. You take the notes and then you tweak it. While the client's asking you for specific yeah. emphasis or do this yeah. different, do that different. And that's what they pay you to do. Yeah. And it's fun. It is fun. I record some of them on the other end. So, so you know yeah. what it is. Okay. Oh, yeah, did I do sure. a good job explaining good what job. it is? Okay. Yeah. And I can hear your voice has got like character because you've got the rasp mm-hmm. thing and a little bit of a lower voice for female. And yeah. Yeah. Those are good qualities. They've called me a lot for smoker stuff. <laughs> like <laughs> quit help Minnesota. So I'm like, and I don't smoke cigarettes or anything, but. I'm like, that makes sense. I get it. Do you need help quitting smoking? Quit Help Minnesota is here for you. You know, like. <laughs> what about the sink world? Mike Dreams was my sink man. Like he did a lot of sink work. He got a lot of deals where the songs that we've done together were used in different mm. things. I think it was like the N- NBA playoffs on TNT. They used Take Me Higher. So there's a song we did together called Take Me Higher. So he got that on a commercial. I can't think of it right now, but basically he was very active in the sync world. And a lot of the sync stuff that I've gotten is really him getting those opportunities for his music. And I was on the song. I got very close to signing a deal, but I didn't like the idea of giving half of my publishing up. Mm. And I think that's just something that I need to get over because I think that's just what they do nowadays. There are um, exclusive sync deals and there's non-exclusive sync deals. Mm -hmm. And so you can do things where... It's all non-exclusive. Mm-hmm. They do exist, but a lot of opportunities are the exclusive world where you have a publisher mm-hmm. that is essentially signing that track. They're essentially purchasing the track for potentially zero dollars. Some of them will pay a little bit of money for mm-hmm. it, but it might be a zero dollar purchase. They own that master now, and the agreement is that they're going to rep it and hopefully get you a lot of placements with that track, and mm-hmm. you'll keep your writers, but you can't do anything else with that track. If I was making new music, yeah. that'd be a different story. But like for my existing catalog, I don't want And typically yeah, and typically that. people that are working with that type of sync library or sync house aren't giving them their precious artist material. It is the it is stuff they make specifically for that library. Right. Yeah. A lot of times it's composers that are writing with that in mind, knowing that fully well that they're just going to sell it to this library yeah, or sign it with the library. Generally, if you're an artist first, where you've put a huge investment into an album and time and emotion, all that kind mm. of stuff, then a non-exclusive opportunity is probably more what you're looking for. Right. But generally speaking, that non-exclusive stuff is going to be pretty competitive because there's all the other artists out there also trying to chase that down. Right. Exclusive. And there's sometimes not as many opportunities for that because Mm -hmm. the exclusive stuff can be easier for the network or whoever's going, the business, whoever's going to use it. They want the exclusive stuff. It it makes it easier for them to use it because Mm -hmm. it's free and clear. Yeah. Or at least it can be free and clear. Right. So from the business perspective, 
there's a lot of advantages to that. And that's why it's easier to get placements, I think, through the exclusive world than it is the non-exclusive. But that's only my experience. Mm -hmm. We'll at some point have more of a sync expert on the podcast to talk about that. But I look forward to watching that. It can be a nice little extra source of income. It's a nice surprise. It's generally, from my experience of it, unless you're doing it full time and you really know that world, it's not much of a business plan because you can't really figure out like how much you're actually going to get from it Mm because it's just dependent on how often it's going to get placed and you have no control over that. Mm -hmm. But it's nice bonus on the top when it happens. I spend so much energy when I'm trying to create something and like, like energy and really intention. It's really hard for me to just throw some words together just for the sake of throwing it together. So I'm really trying to put my best foot forward every time. Yeah. So when I come up with something and what if I end up liking that? You know what I'm saying? And what if it ends up not getting placed, but now I can't do anything with it Yeah. because they own it and they're waiting for somebody to want to use it. And so now it just sits, that part of it, just that's probably why I don't vibe with the idea so much. It, I think there's a couple things if you're if you're seriously considering sync. One is that you need to have the resources yourself probably to, to record on your own right. and be able to kick out um, good compositions and, right. and good recordings, good masters without a huge investment. Because if you are paying a studio and all that kind of stuff, then you're going to guard those masters more. A part of what that mindset of what if I really like it and it doesn't get used and things like that, you just can't have any sort of scarcity mindset. When you get into that world, it's, yeah, I wrote this. It's really great. And I can do it again. Mm -hmm. And I can write another one that's just as good. And I can write another one after that that's better. You know, like, and part of that comes when you've kicked out a hundred tracks. After a hundred, you're like, okay, I can do this over and over again. Mm -hmm. And so if you're not in that position where it's, I can do 20 songs in my lifetime, then yeah, don't right. sign those away exclusively, right. maybe. You might want to hold on to those for your just for your own sake. Mm-hmm. You have to have access. And then when you do have access, you also have to just have that mindset of, I can do it over and over again. That was a good note. Ashley, this whole episode has been fun. I feel like we've covered a ton of territory, a yes. lot of ground, a lot of stuff. Before we wrap up, I want to get your sort of overview, looking back at all these things you've covered. What do you think has been the biggest secret to your success and your longevity of finding all these different avenues that you've been successful in and continuing to do music to this day? If you had to pass down a tip to to the listeners, what do you think is the main thing that's that propelled that? I would say no stone left unturned. It's almost like say yes to almost everything. And the things that maybe you shouldn't have said yes to, you'll learn from it. I'd rather say yes to something and have that lead to something and be glad that I did it rather than say no to it. I've done a lot of free stuff, especially early on in my careers. Just building up that experience and that resume, a lot of times you're going to have to say yes to stuff that don't necessarily make financial sense. But realizing where you are and understanding the opportunity and things. Now, some things you don't have to say yes to, especially after you've done enough where you know you have a standard and for whatever reason that doesn't meet your standard. I'm not saying throw your morals and your standards away, but definitely recognize opportunities and those opportunities are not always financial. And sometimes they'll make you feel a little uncomfortable, like as in my case with the cover band. But that has been my my largest moneymaker, the most consistent, maybe not per gig, but like over time, it's been consistent, it's reliable, it's built me up as a performer and things like that. That's because I said yes to an opportunity that came my way. And at the time, it didn't have the most favorable terms, but over time, I was able to negotiate better terms for myself and appreciate it for what it did offer, what it does offer. So 
that and like being a good person, being friendly, stepping outside of your comfort zone. Like I'm not the most extroverted person. I think I'm an extroverted introvert, really. But I've been in situations where I just have to go for it because I'm like, what if this creates the next opportunity for me? It's so easy to like stay closed in. I've had to come out of my shell. I would say push the boundaries of your comfort. I don't mean to sound like a hypocrite because we did talk about how there's a lot of ways in which I'm staying comfortable. But in moments, you know, in scenarios, like my mom asking me to sing as a kid, it wasn't comfortable, but I would push past that discomfort and that nervousness. And so I still have nerves and things that I have to push past to this day, whether I'm performing or in a networking situation or social situation, a cocktail hour or whatever. And there's people and, you know, I know that person has access and has probably some value that they could add. They can't add it if they don't know what I do. I have to make the introduction. So pushing past that. But yeah, that's like the tidbits that I think have aided in my success up to this point. Thanks for sharing. And if people want to learn more about you or connect, like where would you like them to go to? Sure. You can go to ashleydubose.com and that links to my videos on YouTube, my Instagram. You can DM me. I always write back. I read all my messages, Facebook, and pretty much all the social media links are right there on ashleydubose.com. Cool. And we'll link to that in the show notes as well. But Ashley, thank you so much for coming and sharing your past, your stories, your insights, everything. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed this. Me too.